Luke chapter 5 and verse 33. But before we look at our text, would you please join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for this time of worship, and, and we readily confess that, that we need you more than we need anything else. And so we ask that you would use your word under the power of the Holy Spirit to help us see and, and treasure and know and love Jesus Christ with all of our hearts, our minds, our souls, and with all of our strength. Father, we want to know you, and so we ask that by your grace and mercy and out of your love, you would make yourself known to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. If I were to ask you to come up with a picture of the holiest and most spiritual person that you could come up with, uh, what would you envision? What would that person's demeanor be like? Who would that person's company consist of, the friends that they kept? What would that person's day-to-day -day activities look like? The picture of the first century holy person is found in Luke chapter 18 and verse 9. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want, but I will read that to you. And this is where Jesus addresses the, the current perception of the spiritual person who is holy. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The holy and spiritual person in the first century made sure to let people know that they prayed a lot. I fast two times per week. I have no skeletons in my closet, no crimes on my record, and no infidelities in my marriage. And they definitely would create a safe distance between themselves and the riffraff. Sinners like the tax collector and the adulterer and the like, because the holier we get, the more we avoid people like that. And their own perception of the coming Messiah would be a better version of themselves who would come and applaud them for all of their spiritual efforts that they had committed themselves to. Their Messiah would congratulate them on how righteous they have made themselves to be. And Jesus, up to this point, is not fitting into this picture. He calls Galilean fishermen to follow him. He lays his very own hands on the sick and uses those hands to touch even the filthy leper whom we would never, ever come near to. Jesus calls the most obvious and even the worst kind of sinners to come and follow him. He doesn't create distance with the tax collector. Jesus actually goes to the tax collector's house and spends time with him and all of his other shady friends, and he issues the call to even the worst of them. You have to leave all of this to come and follow me. But these are the things that spiritual people of this day and age would never, ever be caught doing. And this is a company that they would never, ever be caught keeping. 
And so Jesus is not fitting into their view of what the Messiah ought to be like. And as undeniable as his power has been, and as powerful as his preaching and his miracles have been, Jesus is simply not what they want. He's not meeting their expectations. This Jesus welcomes sinners and does not make a big deal out of us. And therefore, there has been this conflict between the religious leadership of the day and Jesus himself. And in our text, this conflict continues as the Pharisees and the scribes who don't like Jesus' choice of company, they point out yet another thing that they find wrong with him. We read in verse 33. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. Religious people, holy, spiritual people fast. Your followers do not, Jesus. You can't be all that spiritual unless you and your disciples fast. Now, the irony is this. Jesus just fasted for 40 days when he was being tried and tempted by the devil. They just didn't see that. But what is fasting? Fasting is to go without food and drink for a period of time or abstaining from other comforts and whatnot, and it is always with a purpose. In the Old Testament, the law ordered the people of God to fast on the one day, atonement day, Leviticus 16, 29, you shall afflict yourselves. Fasting was a part of that. You shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you, for on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. That affliction meant no food, no drink, no work. It was a day when the people of God went without. Because it was on this day of atonement that the nation of Israel was to be reminded that we are sinful and we are guilty and that God must take away our sin from us by the blood and body of someone else expressed in the sacrifice and offering of an animal. This blood covers us. This blood cleanses us because we can't cover or cleanse ourselves. And this abstaining and this fasting was a time of this abject humility and meaningful reflection and sorrow over sin. That's the only commended fast in the Old Testament. But fasting would occur voluntarily sometimes. Like when national tragedy hit, like the fall of Jerusalem. Zechariah 7 and 8, people fasted and they're remembering of that. Fasting also occurred when personal tragedy hit. King David prayed and fasted when his son was deathly ill. He refused to eat. It is a practice where you go without because your mind and your heart is occupied with something else. Grief over sin, sorrow over a situation, hunger for God's will to take place. There is a weightiness to this kind of worship associated with mourning and brokenheartedness and even desperation. But by the time the first century had come along, rather than reflecting a broken and desperate heart, hungry for the Lord, expressing going without food, fasting instead <clears throat> became this badge of honor for people to advertise how holy you really were. <clears throat> Listen to Matthew 6.16, where Jesus points this out. He says, and when you fast, 
Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. A hypocrite's an actor. And fasting by the first century had become an act for an audience so that people would see how much you're suffering and go, look how holy that guy is. He's in so much pain and deprivation, he must really love the Lord. Jesus says, truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Fasting by the time of the first century had largely become an act performed by hypocrites where the outsides looked spiritual and yet whose hearts were far away from God because they were more concerned with their own image and their own glory rather than with his. And the Pharisees and the scribes who both shaped and influenced the worship of Israel in the first century, they're asking Jesus, why aren't you doing what the real holy people do? We fast twice a week for all to see and look down upon tax collectors and thank God that we're not like them. You don't fast and you call tax collectors to be your followers and they aren't fasting either. Therefore, the accusation is their conclusion that you cannot be sent from God. You can't be all that holy, Jesus. You can't be all that spiritual because you don't fit into our mold. Now, before we move on, I want to show you a danger within these verses. The Pharisees fasted twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays. The Bible commands a fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. Now, there's nothing wrong with fasting more than that voluntarily. That's between you and the Lord. But when we begin to use our own lives and our own patterns of behavior that are not explicitly commanded in the Scripture as a barometer for how other people are doing spiritually, we are on the fast track to becoming Pharisees. I fast every Monday. Why aren't other people doing what I do? That's a dangerous question. I wake up at 5 a.m. to read my Bible every day, and if you don't do the same, well, obviously you cannot love Jesus as much as I do. I pray five times a day, and my prayers last 15 minutes each time, and anyone who prays less times a day for a shorter amount of time just cannot be all that spiritual. I watch Fox News and not CNN. Oh, we're polo shirts and not t-shirts. Yada, yada, yada. We can make the list as long as we want. Now, prayer and, and reading the Bible early in the morning, these are good things. But the frequency and what time of the day that you actually do that are not explicitly commanded. And if those spiritual disciplines begin to swell your head and those disciplines need to be advertised to the people around you, be very, very careful that you're not getting closer and closer to the heart of the Pharisee in Luke 18. Thank you that I am who I am and not like these people down over there. One commentator, he writes this, the first step in becoming a self-righteous religious Pharisee is using our own personal religious example as a requirement for everyone else to obey. The only joy the self-righteous person really has is in being better or in being higher than someone else and looking down your nose and wagging your long finger at other people who don't measure up to your example. I would never do what they do. I would never be what they are. When we begin to have that attitude towards 
others, we have already lost sight of the fact that we are merely sinful people resting upon the mercy of God. And this is what the Pharisees and scribes are doing in our text. They are wagging their fingers at the Son of God, the Messiah, God himself, because they can't see past their own egos. We must be very, very careful, brothers and sisters, when we appeal to our habits and others like us and hold people to a standard that is not even found in the Scripture. Oftentimes it is that our self-discipline is actually being used for vanity rather than it is for true spiritual growth. It happens within Israel. It can happen within the church. And so we must must keep watch. And so the religious gurus can't stand this Jesus who eats and drinks with tax collectors when he should be avoiding those people and fasting twice a week like all of us do for everyone to see. Verse 34, we continue. And look at Jesus' response to this accusation. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. In response to the ones who advertise, look how much I suffer, look how much I sacrifice, look how much I pray, and how much I pay and tithes, how much I abstain and fast, and distort my face, and look so glum, so that by, by my misery you might think that I'm holy. In response to those whose religion is about their own ego and vanity, and advertise self-affliction, Jesus gives to them a picture of the kind of joy that occurs at a wedding ceremony. When you see a bride and a groom looking at each other with love in their eyes, you are getting closer to the gospel. When you begin to understand the love that can exist and should be celebrated between that new husband and that new wife, you're getting nearer to Christianity. The Christian faith is not a list of rules to follow so that we can puff out our chest when we check mark them off. The Christian faith is about a love that exists in God for us when we did not deserve that love in any way at all. If you read through the Old Testament, two things become immediately clear. That God's people, Israel, has this tendency to turn away from God and prove themselves over and over to be faithless and prone to giving their hearts to anything and to anyone other than to Yahweh. And yet another thing becomes clear at the same time, that God's love for his people, it endures nonetheless. And listen to the language that God uses to illustrate his love. Isaiah 62, 5, For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Think about that image. You ever see at a wedding the eyes of the groom while everyone's looking at the bride? That emotion that's there? That's the holy, almighty God rejoicing in his heart over his love for us. This is not a reluctant love. This is a love with great excitement and great joy. Hosea 2, 19 through 20. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. His love is steadfast. And it has to be. 
if we just look in the mirror for a little bit. God's love has to be steadfast for people like us. This union has to be filled with mercy from God to us because of our many failings. And yet this marriage and this union is eternal. It's forever. I'm sure you've seen even in our imperfect marriages, even in these little windows, how long suffering and enduring and, and patient and persevering one partner can be to another. How much more so the Lord who loves us in his faithfulness. The Old Testament consistently refers to Yahweh as the groom of his people to express the kind of love and devotion he has to them. And here it is that Jesus has referred to himself previously. I'm the son of man who can forgive sins, Luke 5.24. I am the great physician who comes for the sick, Luke 5.31. And here, I am the bridegroom for my people. I'm the husband of those who are my own so that I might love them with the highest kind of love that the best and highest human imperfected marriage is merely a pointer to. I have come for my bride. I'm here to love my people. Fasting is a time of brokenheartedness, mourning over sin and desperation for that which God has not yet granted, but the bridegroom is here. And after centuries of longing and waiting for the Messiah to arrive, I am letting you all know right now that I am here and I am filled with love for my people. Now is not the time for fast. No one acts all gloomy at a wedding and refuses to eat unless you're the ex-boyfriend or the ex-girlfriend, then maybe. But you probably wouldn't even be at that wedding. Everyone else is there to celebrate that love and eats and drinks in recognition of the event at hand. This is love. The kind of unconditional love, which means a love that is not earned. We didn't meet any conditions. This love is only received. It does not fit into the Pharisees and scribes' paradigm of religion of self-righteousness and self-effort and self boasting, and therefore this kind of joy that a forgiven tax collector can have and throw a party over, it's completely alien to them. Jesus responds to their accusation of being irreligious with a picture of joy and celebration in the love of God. But this is not the entire picture that Jesus gives to them. And here he begins to foreshadow more and more with a backdrop of the Pharisees and the scribes and their conflict with Jesus, he's foreshadowing a time when the bridegroom is going to be taken away, and that is the time when his people are going to fast. Jesus understands that the road to Calvary is the one that he's on, and that the cross of shame is where he will hang, and the tomb is where his dead body will be placed. He is going to be taken away. And yet all of these things prove again and again our bridegroom's love for us. For Jesus will suffer in our place and pay a debt that is not his own, but ours. And endure a wrath that he should not incur. He endures it in our stead. And the death that is due to the wages of our sin is the death that the sinless Jesus experiences in our place. Because that is how much he loves us, brothers and sisters. He lays down his own life for the sake of his bride. 
And when Jesus defeats death and rises from the grave and ascends into heaven, he gives us the promise that he will return one day soon for his people and his beloved. And it is during that in-between time where we know our Savior's love and yet we are apart from him in the fullest sense of being in his presence, that that is when we take up the practice of fasting because there is an ache in each of our hearts for his return. There is a longing and a desperation for the coming of Jesus, which makes us not want to eat sometime and makes us want to refrain from certain kind of comforts because that yearning is so weighty and the desire is so much. It's the kind of ache that Paul felt when contemplating his own death while chained in a cell in Philippians 1.21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Verse 23, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. You feel that aching longing to be with Jesus in the fullest sense, which causes us to abstain from certain worldly comforts here. It's a longing that David felt in Psalm 16, 11. We sing this verse from time to time. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And this is the same desire that we have when we come to church to worship together. Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. What's our hope? And that Jesus is going to come to be with us. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Why do we gather in person? So that we might look and long together for Jesus Christ and yearn for his return as one family. The Christian life is a life of anticipation that the love we already know from the bridegroom will be fully and finally experienced when Jesus Christ comes again. And so we hope and long and even ache together, and therefore sometimes we do fast because of that yearning and aching for more of Jesus Christ. More of him than what we can have in this life. Listen to John Piper. He writes a book on fasting titled A Hunger for God. He says, Christian fasting is not a self-wrought discipline that tries to deserve more from God. You don't fast to get what you want. I'm going to bargain with you. I'm going to miss eight meals if you give me this. That's not what it is. Christian fasting is not a self-wrought discipline that tries to deserve more from God. It is a hunger for God awakened by the taste of God freely given in the gospel. We know the love of God because of the gospel. And so we hunger for more of God, which is why we miss some meals and miss some comforts to stoke that hunger even more. And so the Christian from time to time will go without food and drink and abstain from other things with the purpose of channeling that hunger for the Lord in anticipation of his return because of our longing to be with our groom who loves us so much and to have him with us ever so fully. Now, brothers and sisters, the, the obvious question at this point in our text is, do you long for the return of Jesus Christ? Do you long for it? If you were to find out Jesus Christ was coming in three days, 
would that cause you to scramble or cause you to rejoice? Do you ache for the return of Christ? Do you want that more than anything else? Or have we, like the foolish girls in Matthew 25, become drowsy because it's been too long and move our attention to other things? What is it that you long most for in this life? I think that some and perhaps many of us are longing for other things way more than we long for the return of Jesus. I just long for a better job and a better boss or a better place to live on this passing momentary earth. I'm single and I want a spouse more than anything else. I want a child. I want a family. I want a healthy body. I want an easier career. I want a six-pack. Some of us would fast for a maskless nation and long for a COVID-free America more than we long for thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Others of us would fast because we long for a vaccinated nation and are aching, aching and hungering for everyone to get injected and looking down upon those who refuse a shot. How many desire the return of Jesus Christ how many long for and ache for the love we supposedly already know in him to be fully expressed and enjoyed in his very presence. It is that love for Jesus that calls us to abstain from things in the world. It is this love for Christ which sends us to our knees in prayer to commune with our Lord. It is this affection for Jesus that makes us read his word it is this hunger for his presence that makes us fast because in the meantime, he has, in a great sense, been taken away from us. None of these things are badges of honor. Look at me. These are all evidences in our lives of genuine love because our hearts ache for Jesus to come for us quickly. But not everybody wants this kind of transforming love. Verse 36, we continue. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wine skins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. You can't add Jesus Christ to pharisaical religion. You can't ask, add mercy onto performance-based rule-keeping. There's no mixing of self-righteousness with grace, no adding of Jesus onto works. The religion of the Pharisee is utterly incompatible with the religion of the tax collector. The Pharisee keeps wanting to say, look at me, look at me, all that I do, all that I suffer, all that I fast and pray and pay and serve and do, 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 do. The tax collector beats his chest and asks for mercy because he knows he deserves nothing. And yet it is the son of God comes into that person's house to celebrate the forgiveness of sins because of the great love which exists in the bridegroom. And Jesus gives to those listening these two pictures of utter incompatibility. You put a new cloth on an old garment. Once you wash it, that new cloth is going to shrink and it's going to tear the old material. And that stuff doesn't match anyway. The whole thing's ruined. 
You can't put new wine into old wine skins because the new wine needs new skins. That will stretch when that wine ferments. Old skins have already been stretched and they're inelastic. So when that wine is poured and releases those gases, the skin ruptures, the wine is lost. You can't mix the old and the new. Now the old way of thinking is really the prevalent way of thinking today. That if there is a heaven, I'm going to get in. Why? Because I'm a good person. Well, why are you a good person? Because I don't murder like that guy. I don't steal like that girl. I'm good because I am better than someone else, and therefore I am righteous, self-righteous. And if there is a God, he will congratulate me and open the gates to heaven for me because of the way I have lived my life. That is the Pharisee, and that is everyone who thinks that they are good enough, which is almost everyone on this planet, because they can somehow find others who are worse than they are. But the gospel, the new wine, declares that none of us are good. No one, not even a single one of us. And that we are all the tax collectors with nothing to offer but a plea for mercy. <clears throat> that we are all the lepers, shunned and disgusting and ostracized from God. That we are all the paralytics. We are utterly incapable of even coming near to him. Someone else has to carry us to him. We are the sinful, we are the weak, the lame, the sick, the blind, the deaf, and yet it is that we have a bridegroom who loves us in spite of all of these things and who desires with all of his heart to be with us when he should have no business with us. Christianity is not a religion of works. It is entirely of his amazing grace, and therefore we cannot despise those who are less than us we don't look at sinful people and thank God that we're not like them. We look at other people who don't know Jesus and recognize we were them. And outside of the grace of God, we would still be them. But God has loved us with a covenant love that not only forgives us our sins, but calls us to forsake our sins. We were doomed to destruction, but the Lord was willing to make each of us clean. And so our image is not of a puffed out chest, but of a cross and a God-man upon it, for we know that we cannot save ourselves. Someone else must save us on his merit and not our own, and that someone is Jesus Christ. And we're only saved because he loves us. And brothers and sisters, we cannot say, look at me and look at Jesus at the same time. Our choice and our decision and our lives is to say clearly, look to Jesus Christ Look to him. Look to him and you can be saved. Anyone can be saved if you come to Jesus Christ. But that is a very tough pill for some people to swallow. And some like that old wine, the look at me wine, the look at what I can contribute to my own righteousness cloth, the one that never wants to be in the same boat as the tax collector they despise. I don't want grace that's too demeaning for me. The idea that I contribute nothing and I have to be saved in the same way as a murderer, that's just too much for me. The old wine is so much better. That's a very chilling thought for it is a turning of the back upon grace, a turning away from love and a turning away from an eternity with our creator, our maker, our Lord, and our God.
The religion of the Pharisee is the one who trusts in himself that he is righteous and therefore he does treat others with contempt. The religion of the tax collector doesn't treat people with contempt, but is rejoicing and rejoicing in the love of his God. He wants to give mercy and he loves others with the same kind of love with which he has been loved. And therefore, the true spiritual person, brothers and sisters, is the one who understands this love more and more and will therefore love others as well and will invite all of his friends to come and meet the Jesus who has saved him, self and herself. Would you please pray with me? Father, we thank you for your love. And I know its heights and depths and breadth is something we can't explore in this life. Lord, help us as much as we can handle, our minds and our hearts handle. Help us to understand more and more of just how much it is you actually love us. Show us more and more how much it is that Jesus Christ actually loves us. Illuminate in our hearts what it means, the magnitude of that love that he laid down his life for us. Show us how much the Holy Spirit loves us in convicting our hearts of sin and of your love. In being patient in transforming us day to day, would you show us, God, how much you love us and help us hunger and thirst for you more than we do anything else? Help us to fast from the things of the world, abstain from even pleasures here so that we might long more and more for that coming day. Fill our hearts with hope and anticipation and community here that together we might link arms and just anticipate what is to come. May that be the apple of our eye more than anything else this world has to offer. We love you, God. Thank you for first loving us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.